This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Islam, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We continue where we left off. We are on the journey of the hijrah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The hijrah, my brothers and sisters, is the date that we Muslims have developed uh, as a result of. And the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ was from Mecca to Medina. The hijri calendar that we follow is based on that. So we start counting from approximately the date of the, of the hijrah, or slightly after the Prophet ﷺ got to, uh, he got to, to Quba, which is right outside of Medina. Approximately the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal, which is about 12 days after the first month of the Hijri calendar that we follow, basically the Muslims clocked it backwards and started from, from there. Went back 12 days and said, this is... They started counting from then. That the first day of Muharram, not 12 days, I'm sorry, they went back to Muharram and kept, continued the following year from Muharram and we turned it into those 12 months. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, that was approximately after... 13 years of the Prophet ﷺ living in Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ at the end of it migrated to Medina and Islam started to spread. My brothers and sisters in Islam, the Prophet ﷺ left his cousin Ali in Mecca for only one reason so that Ali can return the belongings, the amanat, the trusts that people had left with the Prophet as a trust, almost like a bank reserve, but except that it doesn't give interest on it or anything like that or any business. Basically, a reserve, and people, this is evidence that the people of Mecca. Right up to the point when he did migration, they trusted the Prophet ﷺ with all their belongings. In those days, if you have something, you have money, you have uh, property where you don't know where to keep it in safekeeping, you normally look for someone who is trustworthy and you left it with them. Right up to his migration, even when they're about to, when they attempted to kill the Prophet ﷺ, there are still people from the enemies who are entrusting the Prophet ﷺ with their belongings and he is still taking it to keep it with him. SubhanAllah. The trust is still there. And that's the thing, when you stand firm on a belief, then people respect you. There are two types of people they respect. They respect the people who stand on true belief and people who stand on false belief but they stand firmly on it. People respect people who stand on some kind of principle. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala orders us to stand firm on that which is the truth. And the truth, my brothers and sisters in Islam, is the words of Allah, number one, the creator of the universe, once you believe in them. <coughs> Otherwise, Ali radiallahu anhu would have migrated before the Prophet because the Prophet, peace be upon him, wouldn't allow anybody to migrate after him. He has to be the last one. And yet ordered every single one of them to migrate. Ordered. 
At this point, I need to make a very clear statement, and that is now the hijrah, the migration, emigrating from Mecca to Medina for the first time had become an obligatory, compulsory command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to His Messenger to say to the Muslims of Mecca who embraced Islam, they must emigrate from Mecca to Medina. There is no excuse. It became a farad ayn. Can anyone tell me the difference between farad ayn and farad kifaya? If you've heard of these two, two farad ayn and farad kifaya. Now, ayn is a must on every single individual. Every single individual. And farad kifaya. So the farad kifaya is when it's compulsory upon members of the community to do it. If a few members do it, then the rest are exempted. For example, a funeral prayer. If a few members of the community do a funeral prayer, then the rest of them are exempted. If you come, you get the ajr, you get the rewards. And your reward is amazing. It's great. It's one of the rights of a Muslim against another Muslim. One of the six rights any Muslim has upon another Muslim, whether you know them or don't, one of them is to attend their funeral. And this is a farad kifaya. If members of the community do it, the rest of them are exempted. But if nobody in the community does it, all those who knew about it, who knew that nobody attended, and they could have attended, will be sinned. They'll share the sin. So this was farad ayn. Every individual had to migrate. Why? Number one, it was the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, direct command. And they cannot disobey Allah and His Messenger. Number two, Mecca had become a place of persecution. They can no longer practice their religion there. If you are seen to pray, your family entraps you. They take you away from your family, they imprison you, they tie you up, they persecute you. The slaves were being tortured, sometimes till death. <coughs> you cannot openly declare that you're a Muslim or even hint that you're a Muslim. So there's no freedom of deen anymore. No freedom of deen. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had ordered in the Quran that there must be freedom of religion. Allah said in the Quran, in a controversial verse today, which people it's not a controversial verse, but people use it to try and attack Muslims. Allah says, Fight them until there is no more persecution. And religion is for God, is for Allah. The meaning of this verse is, in context, that the people of Mecca were persecuting the Muslims not allowing them to freely practice their religion and say it in open. They had to do it in private, and if they were known, they were going to be killed. That's the fitna that Allah is talking about. Qatiluhum, fight them, means a mutual fight. And that verse came down later, when the Meccan enemies started, perpetrated the battle in the Battle of Badr. And we'll come to that, inshallah, in a couple of weeks. So Allah said to them, fight them. But for one reason, 
until there is no more persecution. Nobody could argue with that. No one in this world today can argue that people who fight in order to establish freedom or to buy their freedom or to bring freedom to the people that they have a right to. Nobody will argue with that. Today they call them freedom fighters. But Allah said that already in the Quran. So that there is no more persecution and so that religion is for Allah. It means so that people can practice sincerely for Allah and not need to hide it in secrecy, afraid of being seen to pray, for example. So Allah gave permission that to fight back in order for freedom to happen. And somebody might say, well, what about religion? What if there were Christians or Jews or other religions living in a Muslim state? Doesn't that apply to them as well? It's going to apply to you that we give you freedom. You've got to give us freedom. The answer to that is yes. Allah orders us to give them the freedom as well. And history is evidence to that. For over 1,000, approximately 1,200 years, or a little bit more of the, when the Khilafah, the Islamic Empire, Islamic Khilafah, that unique leadership that Muslims had, which was destroyed and fell in the time of the Ottoman Empire, then World War I, it gave allowance to the non-Muslims, especially the Jews and Christians who were living among in the Muslim land, to practice their faith freely, openly. In fact, it is the only religion, the only Sharia in the world. Never, I, I don't know of any Sharia who allows this, except Islam, to give them their own municipality, own area for the Christians, own area for the Jews. And ulama have also addressed other religions as well, being allowed based on this. Their own area that is governed by their own religion in, inside Muslim land, inside, under the Islamic government. To have their own court system, to rule by their Bible or by their Torah, whatever religion they follow, for their people. And the Muslims will not interfere. In fact, anyone who interferes, the Islamic government penalizes them, punishes them, imprisons them, not allowed. And anyone who fights them because of their religion, the Islamic government takes up arms against these people. And that is one form of jihad, which the media and the people who try to attack Islam and people who are ignorant don't understand, don't know, or they deliberately don't say it, they don't address it. Because obviously those who want to ruin your reputation and make you look bad, they avoid the good stuff. And they focus on the bad and exacerbate it, blow it out of proportion if they want. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, persecution, they could not practice their deen. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered them to migrate. A third reason to emigrate was that there was a clear alternative. What was that? Medina. Muslims of Medina, the inhabitants of Ansar and, and Khaz, the Ansar, the Aus and Khazraj people, who were in charge of Medina, were calling the Muslims to come in and guaranteeing them safety and security. Not only that, they will follow them and pledge allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ and make them their own brethren. So they have a safe place to go and practice their deen, a place where they were guaranteed safety and security, and they will not be persecuted because of their religion. On top of that, Mecca was persecution. They couldn't practice their deen, and Allah had commanded it. Put these together. You come up with 
Fardain for a person who is in a similar situation. For a person who is in a similar situation today. Like that, in that context. And I've got a bit more to say, inshallah, as we talk about the hijrah. The last person, so Ali radiallahu stayed in Mecca for a further three or four days until he gave back the amanat, the trusts, to who? To who was he giving it back? To the people of Mecca who are the enemies, the open enemies. This, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but I think that a lot of people can learn great lessons from that in applying it today. These are people who are open enemies of the Prophet ﷺ. They have just sent 40 of their young people from 40 different tribes to kill the Prophet ﷺ, the Messenger of Allah. And as a result, he is now a fugitive and run away from them. All the Muslims have to run away. Yet, the Prophet ﷺ could have kept those trusts which they gave him, those enemies, and taken for the Muslims to benefit from. But no. Why? Because... The original agreement before the Prophet migrated, he had an agreement with these people that he will look after their property and return it to them. So that nullifies every other agreement afterwards, whatever happens. Because the Prophet said, Al Mu'minuna inda shuruti. Believers stick to their conditions and agreements. Unless the agreement has been broken by the other person. Whatever the conditions or the uh, terms of the agreement were, if the other party, one of the parties breaks it, then the, other, then the agreement's off. But this agreement was not broken. Yes, they were after persecuting Muslims, going after the Prophet ﷺ, but those people that entrusted him with, with his wealth, there were no terms like that. There were no terms that, but however, if you attack me and drive me out of your home, I will take your wealth. There was nothing like that. The original agreement, a trust. Keep it and return it. So the Prophet ﷺ fulfilled it. While he's a fugitive, subhanAllah, and told Ali to stay back for three or four days, even though Ali could have been killed, he could have been persecuted, he's got no protection. Yet, the trusts have to be returned. Allah says in the Quran, Inna Allah as a matter of fact, Allah commands you. يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَمْرُكُمْ It's a fard. يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَن تُؤَدُّ الْأَمَانَاتِ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهَا Allah commands you to give back and fulfill the trusts to whomever they belong. He didn't say only to the Muslims. Anyone who has the right to that trust, you must fulfill it and give it to them. That's what Islam is based on, my brothers and sisters. Even at the times of persecution. Unless the terms of the agreement said otherwise. Everybody understand what I'm saying? طيب. Now, Ali Adelano then gives back the amanat and emigrates. Ali Adelano chooses the main highway. Remember what we said about the Prophet and Abu Bakr? They went through the back way so as not to get caught. But Ali Adelano didn't have a bounty on his head. He went on the highway, which meant that Ali Adelan was going to reach Quba maybe almost at the same time, a few hours later, or maybe a day later after the Prophet. The Prophet took the long route, so he took another few days, but Ali Adelan caught up with them. So they almost found each other at the same time, 
maybe half a day difference or a day in Quba. The last person that is reported, uh, I'm sorry, the Ali ibn Anam is reported to have been the last person to emigrate. However, were there still Muslims left back? Yes. Remember we said they are the prisoners. Some of the slaves who had their masters there, they wouldn't let them go. They couldn't go. They couldn't find a way to emigrate. They, if they, if they, they tried, but they were caught again. Some of them converted to Islam after the Prophet ﷺ migrated. What about them? Well, we're going to talk about them in a minute. As for the slaves and those who couldn't leave, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exempted them in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did say, إِلَّا الْمُسْتَضْعَفِينَ مِنَ الرِّجَالِ وَالنِّسَاءِ وَالْوِلْدَانِ لَا يَسْتَطِعُونَ حِيلَةً وَلَا يَهْتَدُونَ سَبِيلًا Except, he said, except the men, women and children who were indeed too feeble to be able to seek the means of escape and did not know where to go. Allah said, أُولَٰئِكَ عَصَى اللَّهُ أَنْ يَعْفُوَ عَنْهُمْ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا Maybe Allah shall pardon these, for Allah is all-pardoning, all-forgiving. Allah said, maybe, maybe, عَسَى You see the fard ayn is so strict that even those who could not get out, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, although He gave them the exemption, He still added the word, maybe. So as people not to take it for granted, Although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He guarantees. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, Asa, maybe, perhaps, in the hope that, it means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant it to them. Allah says in the hope that He forgives you, for example. He will forgive you. Asa, maybe He'll forgive you. It means He will. But He wants you to keep that connection where you don't get into your comfort zone and just take things for granted. Because you know how some people, what they do? We take Allah for granted these days. Astaghfirullah al-Azim. We try to try Allah. Oh Allah, if you give me this, I'll do that. Sometimes we, we feel cheated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If we ask for a dua and it didn't come the way we wanted it, we look back and we say, although I spent uh, 10 minutes away from my usual things, you know, away from my game, from watching TV, just to make dua, Ya Rabbi, you didn't give me what I wanted. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to take this seriously. The matter is not in your hands, it's in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hands. And your connection with Allah is based on your trust in Him. And that you know that He will only do what's best for you. If He gives it, He gives it. If He doesn't give it, then you know that there is something good to come out of it. And there's a reason. Because Allah is all-wise, all-knowing. Anyway, we move on. My brothers and sisters in Islam, there were those who still converted to Islam in there. Some of them tried to escape, but they couldn't. One of them was Abdullah ibn Suhail, radiallahu anhu. His father Suhail later on embraces Islam, becomes one of the great heroes of Islam. But Abdullah is also one of the great heroes. His name is Abdullah ibn Suhail. He converted to Islam before the Prophet migrated, but his father trapped him. He actually chained him up and kept him inside of a room and his uncles and relatives would not let him leave. And he is one of those who could not leave until the Battle of Badr happened. And he will have to talk about that another time because he had to kind of lie to his dad and inshallah, when that time comes, I would like to address it because there are a few points that are sensitive there. When can you lie? When, you, when can't you lie? Because a Muslim, it's haram for them to lie. But in what stringent circumstances can a person lie or, 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 or twist the truth a little bit? Okay, that's a very important 
point that I need, I need to talk about in a couple of weeks, inshallah, not now. Because some people misunderstand that. They take it for granted and think they can lie on any circumstance. No, it's haram. Anyway, Abdullah ibn Suhaib stayed in his chains and he couldn't get out. Then his brother becomes a Muslim and he also gets chained up with his brother. And subhanAllah, they spend their days and nights in their chains among a few others. Maybe 10 to 15 others who were still there. My brothers and sisters in Islam, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala began the encouragement of hijrah. See, how did it happen? First, the Quran started off with a first stage. The Quran doesn't come down in one whole command. You know that, right? For example, when Allah subhanahu wa forbid alcohol, He didn't forbid alcohol immediately on the first day. He brought it down stage by stage. In the first couple of years or so, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, do not approach prayer while you are drunk. In other words, you can drink later on after, after Isha. Hamza was one of those who loved his alcohol and he was seen to be drunk at night and saying some silly things to horses in the night. They, they loved their alcohol. So they came out of Islam, but they didn't approach Salat while they were drunk. Then Allah subhanahu wa brought down the verse, إِنَّمَا الْخَمْرُ وَالْمَيْسِرُ Beware the alcohol, intoxicants, and gambling, and so on, and, and uh, gambling things, and, and, and um, you know, chance games that are based on making profits by chance, and that are impure for you, so avoid them. So now we avoid alcohol, stage by stage. So the immigration was stage by stage as well. And that's how the Quran, that's how Islam comes to the people, my brothers and sisters. We need to learn something from that. Sometimes you find some young people coming out of a family. He, he's always been for 20, 25 years of his life or so, not religious, not praying. And his father and mother always reminding him, prayer, prayer, my son, prayer, my daughter, hijab, my daughter. And they've always been rebellious, right? The day comes when they decide to become religious. And what do they do? They feel this uh, great uh, desire and this great... Uh, immense uh, passion for the deen and then they want to convert everything about their families in one week every little thing they see wrong they want to now tell their father and mother how to do things they want to be the sheikhs of, of the entire family and he forgets that for 25 years or 22 years his father was there praying where were you my brothers and sisters although yeah I'm talking about some families who may not be very well versed about their deen and then suddenly you go and learn your deen and now you find out that some members of your family may not be practicing deen as good as you anymore and then you want to implement it in a night or two and you get angry and you start being strict and so on and so forth. We've seen young people do that a lot. So what you need to do, you need to bring things slowly and be patient with it. Especially people who convert to Islam, they have immense, they require immense patience with their own family. It's not easy, subhanAllah. And we also need to be patient with our own family, with our own uh, people that we love. For Allah subhanahu wa sent it down in stages. You can't come and say, kun fayakun, right now or nothing. Stages. So the Quran said, migrate. At first it was encouragement. Allah sent down the verse in Surah Al-Hajj, and those who emigrate for the cause of Allah and then were killed or died. Allah will surely provide for them a good provision. And indeed, it is Allah who is the best of providers. That's, um, these, these were among the first verses which Allah sent down, encouraging to emigrate in a nice way. Saying, if you go, I will give you this. If you go, you will be among that. Then, a few, a little while later, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent 
tougher words. Now it's getting tougher. Allah said, Inna Allah said, while taking the souls of those who were engaged in wronging themselves, the angels asked, in what circumstances were you? They replied, we were too weak and helpless in the land. The angels said, was not the earth of Allah wide enough for you to emigrate in it? For such men their refuge is hell, an evil destination indeed. This is in Surah An-Nisa. This verse came down when those who converted, remember when I told you some people still converted in secret in Mecca? Remember that one? What happens to them? When those who converted in secret in Mecca, they were too afraid to tell the people, their families and the people that they are Muslim. Now the fear was not a really well-founded fear. It was a fear, a type of fear where they were afraid of losing their belongings and their property. They could have emigrated like the rest, but they weren't courageous enough. And it led them to be so secretive when they had an opening to get out and join the, their brethren, they actually took part in the first battle of Badr with the enemies against the Prophet ﷺ in secret. And some of them were killed by the Muslims in that, in, a, in that battle, and some of them escaped. Allah is talking about them. He's saying that on the day of judgment, Allah will raise them. And the angels will say to them, you know, why? Why, did you, why were you on the enemy's side? What happened? And they will say, we were weak. And the angels will say to them, wasn't Allah's land wide enough for you to emigrate in it and seek a place where your strength is there and you can practice your religion in freedom, such as Medina. So the verses came down even tougher. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala really wants them to leave the place of persecution. Then another verse came down in Surah Al-Ankabut. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Among people there are some who say, We believe in Allah. But then such a person is made to endure suffering in Allah's cause. He reckons the persecution he suffers at the hands of people as though it is a chastisement from Allah. But if victory comes from your Lord, the same person will say, we were with you. Does Allah not know whatever is in the hearts of people of the world? This verse is talking about a few of those Muslims who converted in Mecca and stayed in secret again. They used to say, we can't emigrate, you know, our property, our land, our this, our that, right? And they say, we are suffering. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He said, this type of suffering you were going through was not good enough. Right? It's not like the suffering of, that I'm talking about or I exempt you. And when the Muslims, you found out they were given victory about something, you would come up and say, yeah, we won. See, we were, we were there. We're part of you. Allah says, you weren't part of them. You were not there. My brothers and sisters in Islam, these verses seem quite tough and harsh. And now, I would like to say something that's important for us to learn. If you just went by these verses alone, we would assume that we are in trouble now living in the West. Is that correct? We are living in Australia. These verses are quite troublesome for us, aren't they? It's as though they're telling us, what are you doing? Why didn't you go to Muslim land? Why didn't you get out of there? Isn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's land very wide? Yeah, kind of, but not exactly. First of all, the situation in which these verses came down was different to the situation that we are in now. In some countries of the world today, yes, the situation is the same. Or somewhat the same. For example, I would say in some parts of China, Muslims are persecuted big time, but the world doesn't know about it. 
I know a friend, one friend that came visit Australia and went back. Wallah, he's just a very nice man. Wallah, Allah, came up. Beautiful brother. He was caught with a copy of the Quran in his house in China. And there had come out a law that no one's allowed to have a copy of the Quran. He had a little copy of the Quran. He was arrested and imprisoned. He's been in prison now for two years. The mosques, no one's allowed to attend them. We got reports of Muslims who are forced to eat pork and not fast Ramadan. If they are seen, they are arrested. This is absurd. If they have a way out, they must emigrate. Now, what about us, for example, in Australia and the likes? Well, after the Prophet ﷺ went to Medina and time passed, and then he went and opened Mecca. Do you remember? Fatra Mecca. You know what I'm talking about? You gotta stay with me now. Later on, I'm just fast forwarding a little bit. When he went back and Mecca, Allah gave them back Mecca. And about what, 10, 11 years later or so, Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam stood up and he said, in the hadith which is in Sahih Muslim and Bukhari, La hijrata ba'd al-fatih. There is no more hijra after the opening of Mecca. And the word no more hijra here, here doesn't mean emigrating anywhere you like, loosely. No, he's talking about the actual hijra that Allah ordered to go from Mecca to Medina, to leave. That hijra. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had made that hijrah the greatest reward. And those who did that hijrah in that time are the best of people. The best of people. Like Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman, Ali and the rest who migrated, they are the best of people. When the opening of Makkah happened, alas, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us the reward of that migration is no longer there. So there's no more that hijrah anymore. That's one. The second point about it is that the command of making it obligatory to migrate from Mecca to Medina has now been abrogated. It's gone. There's no more obligation to go from Mecca to Medina. Why? Because there's no more persecution. Also, the Muslims are safe. Also, the Muslims can live in Mecca or Medina or anywhere in between. Also, the number of Muslims is large. Also, the Muslims had established strength. Alhamdulillah. Then, then, after the Fatah of Mecca, there is a hadith which is Sahih in Sahih ibn Habban, where a Sahabi by the name of Fudayk. Ever heard of Fudayk? Ever heard of Fudayk? Anyone? Put your hands up and see who has heard of Fudayk. Strange name. You heard? Fudayk, he lived in another land. It was a, a land of shirk, idol-worshipping shirk, non-Muslim. But he was safe to practice his religion there. And it was said to him that you must emigrate. You're not allowed to stay there because it's a land of shirk. You have to go to Medina. So Fudayk went to the Prophet and he said to him, Ya Rasulullah, I've emigrated because the people are telling me 
It's an obligation upon me to emigrate. I can't stay in the land. And my people are still on shirk. My land is a land of shirk. Straightforward. I think this is black and white for anybody who wants to ask this question today. Rasul said to him, Ya Fudayk, this was sorry after the Battle of Khandaq, about the Battle of Khandaq. He said, Ya Fudayk, establish your salat, aqim salat, and pay your zakat, or zakat, wa'arid anil fawahish. Stay away from indecent acts, sins as much as you can, zina and sins, and live wherever you, wherever you want. Live wherever you want. Go back to your people and live there if you like. And he went back and lived with his people. So the ulama understand from this, if you are not persecuted in the land, and you are able to practice your deen, and you can live an Islamic lifestyle, and there is no fear of fitna on your children, on yourself from losing your deen, like real fitna, you can have a control over it, then you can live there. However, brothers and sisters, this day and age, we understand that some people have a different opinion on the matter. It's more ishtihad, uh, educational guesses. People sit there and, and then we come up with different opinions. Some families, they are very scared for their children. They'd rather emigrate to somewhere else where they feel that they can be raised in a better Islamic lifestyle. By all means, go if you can. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and bless your journey. We're not saying that emigration, you shouldn't do emigration. But what we're saying is not obligatory. Not obligatory according to this dalil. And this is the stance that I stand on actually. However, in circumstances, it is better to emigrate. It is better to emigrate. Certain countries in the world, I don't think there's any country in the world today which is operating under Islamic Sharia correctly. However, there are certain countries that are more Islamic than others. I won't name countries now because this is not a political lecture. However, there are places. Anywhere you find more comfort for your deen is better to be around. It's better to be around. But then again, my brothers and sisters, the question is, the da'wah is important too. And we have a responsibility of da'wah so long as we can give it and do it. Okay? So the conditions are, you should be able to have an Islamic lifestyle, guarantee that you are not going to be persecuted because of your religion, have freedom of your religion and your lifestyle, not obliged to do sins, not obliged to drink alcohol, not obliged to do gambling, not obliged to uh, take riba, obliged as in like by law, not persecuted for any of that, and you are able to pray and do your zakat and avoid sins and have a Muslim community, then there is no harm in doing that. And we shouldn't put down people if they choose to do that. However, every family, every person knows themselves and knows their children. And I do agree there is a slight fear of corruption and so on and so forth, affecting our children. This is where your role comes in. As much as you can. فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. My brothers and sisters in Islam, now, Medina. 
Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam arrives in a place called Quba, a short distance outside of Medina, a few kilometers away. And he stays there on a Monday. From Monday until Friday morning. Four days approximately. He builds a little tiny place to pray, which is actually the first mosque. Maybe the first or the second mosque. There were other little mosques that were built around. I mean, the Muslims in Medina, they were already praying five times a day. Remember? Mus'ab ibn Umar had gone there to teach them. But they didn't have the adhan, they didn't have the iqama, they didn't have the sunnah prayers, but they were praying the five daily prayers. And they were doing Jumu'ah. Before the Prophet ﷺ did Jumu'ah himself, because he was running away, couldn't do it. So obviously they had prayer areas, they had little, you can call little mosques. So they were really there. But yani, publicly we say Quba is, is kind of close to being the first masjid because the Prophet ﷺ himself prayed there first. That's why we say the first masjid, out of respect and honor for the Prophet ﷺ, that, that's what he established first on his migration. But if you want to get very technical, then there were already other little musallas and little mosques. Because a jama is a place that gathers people to pray. So, five daily prayers, you call it a jama, oh, that's a mosque. That was funny. Okay. The, that's funny, isn't it? I'll get you later. I'll get you guys. So what happens next? The Prophet ﷺ builds this little mosque and he prays in it, Punu, with Abu Bakr anhu, and then Ali comes in and joins them. Little incidents happen there. There are people from Medina that hear about him. Among them was a man named Salman al-Farisi. He heard about the Prophet ﷺ. Well, maybe we'll come to him another time. It's a long story. But he used to go and visit him uh, when he was still a disbeliever to because he had some, some signs that he learned from priests, which he, when he used to be a Christian, about the signs of the prophethood. So he was going there to check if he was really the prophet, which he had learned were. In Qubat, my brothers and sisters, Prophet established his prayer, and then he got up on a Friday morning to go to Medina. In Medina, in the meantime, there were hundreds and hundreds, over, probably close something to... to a couple of thousand people had embraced Islam. More, more. Because of Musab ibn Umayr and the rest. And they were anticipating his coming, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We all know the story. On the, on the other side of Medina, there were three neighbors. They were three Jewish tribes. They were called, who can tell me what their names were? Anyone? Jewish tribes. Very well known Jewish tribes in Al-Sira. Who? Banu Nadir. Good. How old are you? Twelve. And you were laughing at me before. You're twelve years old. Now I know. I'm not going to feel guilty punishing you later. But I'm going to forgive you because he got it right. Banu Nadir. Banu Qurayza, which is the most common one we hear about. Banu Qaynuqa. Sounds funny. Qaynuqa. Those were the Jewish tribes that existed around Medina. In Medina, there was Aus and Khazraj, the Arabs. 
These Jewish tribes, I don't know how they got there, really. I, I really don't know. You can read all the history you want. There's differences of opinions. I don't know how they became Arabs. <coughs> Jews originally are not Arabs. But they became Arabs somehow. Uh, they spoke the Arabic language, but they kept their lineage from the children of Israel. And they used to really, they used to manipulate and bully the Aus and Khazraj in an indirect way. They used to try and have control over Medina with their economic power, economic power, money, finances. What they used to do was they had wealth and they used to let the Arabs borrow, lend them in a system called usury. Today, they give it different names, interest, finance. These are just names which Allah never brought down, but just to make it look nice. It's the way they call drugs these days. Angel's dust, bath salt, uh, what is it? Speed. Sounds amazing, right? It's like, it tells the young people, wow, speed, you know, ecstasy. Did I do something wrong by saying these names? You need to know, these are the names they try because they want to trick you in buying them so you can go on corruption and ruin yourself. So when somebody wants to corrupt you, they give it nice names. That's how the media works. Anyway, it was called usury riba. They'd let them borrow something, they've got to repay them more. Not only that, they told them you've got to leave a security bond. What was the bond? You've got to leave your wives or your sisters or your daughters with us. If they didn't accept, you've got to leave your sons with us. Otherwise, your property with us. It was, in, it was, it was oppression. And the Aus and Khazraj used to fight each other for a couple of, uh, couple of centuries, right? And the Jews took advantage of that that were around them. And they used to give them weaponry when they ran out and give them resources. But they would charge them interest for it. Don't worry, you can pay it later. And they had control over them in this manner. Also, they benefited from the Aus and Khazraj continuing to fight because the Jews are waiting for the Prophet, their Prophet to come. When he ended up being among the Arabs, that was a shock to them. They didn't want to accept him. However, my brothers and sisters, guess what? When the Prophet arrived in Medina, among the first things he did was establish a civil relationship between the Arabs, Ansar, Aus and Khazraj, and those three neighboring Jews. But he had to change some of the conditions and the rules so that they were both on the same playing ground. They were both equal in their rights. Uh, no one can oppress the other. So he abolished riba, usury for example. And that, that infuriated them. There was no more control over that. He also established that if anybody attacks the Jewish neighbors, the Muslims take up arms to defend them. Because now they are neighbors. And they were, they had an agreement. But the Jews don't have to take up arms to protect the Muslims if an outside enemy attacked them. Fair deal. And they can trade with each other. They can visit each other. But, and they can marry. The Muslim men can marry Muslim, uh, Jewish women. Why not women marrying them? There is a reason for that and a wisdom because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the man the leadership role in a family and the children are named after the lineage of a man, of the man biologically. So it was taken that if a Muslim woman married a Jewish man, then the children will take the lineage and bloodline of the Jewish families. And in those days especially, and in many 
parts of the world today, the man has the upper hand in property and in family and in leadership and in the last say. So it could not be accepted to give a Muslim woman to a Jewish man or a Christian man to be led and have an authority above her. That's how the system was and so Islam forbid that. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed also to eat from their food, from the food of the Jews and the Christians. Uh, it's called kosher and that is called halal. When you have to see a halal sign, it's not what the, some of the politicians ignorantly say or deliberately say. Halal means what we are allowed to eat. And among the food that we are allowed to eat is food which is meat which, is, which has been slaughtered by Jews, Christians or Muslims. And we don't even have to find out if they said Bismillah or not. We don't have to. The fact that we're not a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim slaughtered the meat, Allah said in the Quran, Their food is halal for you. So I think it's important for people to know and to emphasize, especially here living in Australia, to emphasize to the people who don't understand Islam that, in fact, Islam came to establish good relationships with people, especially with people of other religions. It's a must. And if we're allowed to marry from them, we're allowed to, and then they inherit from us. So if you marry a Jewish woman, she inherits you. Uh, you're allowed to eat from their, from their food, trade, take up arms to defend them, but they don't have to take up to defend you. I don't think there is a single civilization in history that I've ever read that did this with a people who are of a different religion or considered to be among the lines of the enemy somehow or a threat to be like on the other side. Islam did that. And the Prophet ﷺ established that among the first things. Now this broke any control that the Jews had and he had to make them become equal. Equal in the sense of worldly equality, trade and business and land and property. My brothers and sisters in Islam, when the Prophet ﷺ entered Medina, he prayed Jum'ah. First Jum'ah was then. So he reached Quba 12th of Rabi'ah al-Awwal, 13, 14, 15, 16th of Rabi'ah al-Awwal. He reached there and prayed his first Jum'ah ever, just outside of Medina. And what was his first khutbah? His first khutbah was exactly two and a half to three minutes long. I know, I know. Before you go off on the Imams today, we have a different circumstance these days. People used to attend the mosque all the time there and always around knowledge, always around motivation. And I mean, here we hardly, some people don't even attend Jumu'ah at all. But if they do attend once in the blue moon or some people just every week, so the Imams take the opportunity to just extend it and give you a little bit more information and address more things because they're not going to see you for the next week. And some people, they won't see you, Allahu A'lam, except from Eid to Eid. So the Imams have seen that it's good to extend it a little bit just for the benefit of the community in our situation. But if there was a closer connection with the mosques and so on, which we have, alhamdulillah, but on, a, on average, then the khutbah should be very short, two minutes, three minutes. The Prophet ﷺ focused on the following. He focused on donating to build, because obviously they're in a state of building now, building the mosque and the community, building the community. Prayer. He said, do not leave your prayer. If you leave your prayer, your hearts will be hardened. Stick to the Salat. Do not get tired of Quran and Dhikr. You have to establish your connection with Allah Love one another. 
love one another in the love of Allah. Don't love one another for money or for property. Love one another for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah does not like those who break their promises to Allah. This is basically the khutbah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And uh, yani Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, among the things he said was, he wrote on his camel and he said, Ayyuhan nas, afshu salam, O people, spread peace among one another. And feed from your food to others. And connect your family ties. Pray in the night. When people are asleep. You will enter paradise in peace. These are among the first things which the Prophet established and said to the people of Medina as soon as he entered. You see the mindset of Islam. The mindset of developing a community was based on these few points. We cannot be a community if we abandon our salat. We cannot be a community if we abandon our mosques. We cannot be a community if we don't contribute from our energy and our wealth and our skills towards building the community. We cannot be a community. We cannot be a community if we abandon our connection with the Qur'an and with daily dhikr, dhikr remembrance of Allah. You can't. Otherwise, what's going to unite us? Under what purpose? If your love for Allah and your connection with Allah is cut off, your connection from the Muslims is cut off. Your connection from the people is cut off. Your connection from that type of community is going to come up. And you're going to do things your own way. Love one another for the sake of Allah. And do not break your promises. This is what Prophet built the community on in Medina. This is how it began its establishment. How much is it for Aisha? No? Okay, about four or five minutes. My brothers and sisters in Islam, a question. Did the people of Medina welcome the Prophet with the famous chanting, Tala al Badra alayna? Oh, the white moon has rose over us from the valleys of Wada. Then I have to tell you. There is a slight difference among the scholars whether it did happen or not. <laughs> I love ruining the moment, don't I? Some scholars said it may not have happened. It's not completely authentic, but the majority of the scholars believe it did. But it was not sung by everybody. It was sung by a group of little girls that came out, a bunch of, a few girls, and they got together and started making up this, this poetry for the Prophet which makes a lot of sense. You know, little girls, nine years old, eight years old, ten years they come out, they're really good at that stuff. I've got a ten-year-old, mashallah, I don't know how they, her and her friends come up with these things that rhyme, and it takes us an hour to get the hold of it. Alright, even hopscotch and that thing they do like this is unbelievable. I mean, they do it in like five minutes, it's, you've got a whole game for, for the next 100 years. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, this is basically what had happened. Otherwise, the people of Medina were saying different things. They were saying, Allahu Akbar, the Messenger of Allah has come. O Messenger of Allah, you are safe. We obey you. We will not uh, disobey you, you and your companions. These are the things that they were saying. Among the things they were saying to me is, come and live, stay at my house. I will be your host. Because among the Arabs, hope being a host is a huge thing. However, the Prophet ﷺ would say to each one of them, let my camel decide where it's going to sit. His camel, he had a camel. Who knows its name? Qaswa. Let Qaswa figure wherever she sits, that's where my 
home and the masjid will be built. And it sat in a particular place where now it's where we know Masjid al-Nabi, Nabawi. And right there, by the time his house was built and the masjid was built, he stayed coincidentally with whoever was closest to the house. And he was Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. His name is Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. He was not very comfortable financially. And he had a two-story house, but don't think two-story like some mansion. Two-story, and if water seeped from the top or spilt, if you leave it long enough, a couple of days, it might get through. So, he wasn't very well off. However, it was the greatest honor for him to host the Messenger of Allah and Abu Bakr And the Prophet said to him, let me stay at the bottom because you've got a family. It's easier for me to go in and out. So he made it very easy for him. And at the same time, this teaches us that a guest should make things easy on their host. Then let me bag the Lebanese people, my, my people, okay? I'm not going to bag anyone else. I'm not going to bag the Lebanese. That's enough. <laughs> and being a host, however, a good thing about the Arabs in general and also other cultures, but I know my culture very well, that when it comes to hospitality, it's, it's unbelievable. Right? I have been to other cultures as well, and they are unbelievable. However, when I moved to the Fijians and Pakistanis and that, I just can't sleep the night because the burning sensation <laughs> from the chili and stuff kills. But alhamdulillah, now I'm used to it, brother. I'm used to it. They got me used to it by force, mashallah. So everybody, Muslims are generally hospitable, and we are encouraged to be hospitable. There's a beautiful hadith, I'll finish it with this, about hospitality and the guest. That uh, sahih hadith that the Prophet sallallahu uh, alaihi he he heard about a woman, uh, a man or a woman who was complaining that too many guests come in and out. So the Prophet ﷺ went there and uh, sh they were hospitable to him. And then as he was leaving, she said, I saw the images, symbols of spiders and scorpions and things like that exiting my home behind the Prophet ﷺ. And when I asked him, the Prophet ﷺ said, this is what happens when you treat your guest well. When he comes in and he leaves after you have been hospitable to them, he leaves or she or they leave with the sins that have been accumulated in your household. And those scorpions and spiders are a symbol of sins that have been accumulated. When you are hospitable to the guests, subhanAllah, they help wash away the sins that exist inside your home. And subhanAllah, for those of you who do it for the sake of Allah, try it with me when I come to your house. <laughs> but I only eat kebabs and what I only no, I'm joking. So we come inside, and when they leave, and you do it for the sake of Allah, you actually get a gift. The gift is a feeling of this comfort, of a blessing that has entered your home. And the feeling of relief. Not relief because the guest is gone. If you do it for, for the sake of worldly things, it's a relief that the guest is gone. But the relief is you feel a burden of sins gone off you. If you do it for the sake of Allah, you feel happier, subhanAllah. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, as much as you can, be hospitable to your guests. And I say to the guests, don't overdo it you know, with, with your hosts. Have some mercy on them, inshaAllah, and reciprocate as the Prophet ﷺ advised us. So inshaAllah, next week, my brothers and sisters, we will continue about the life in Medina. Hada wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.